Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Tuesday, April 19th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Online this morning, site called Twitter, I saw people, a certain kind of person, ripping apart Taylor Lorenz. Lorenz is a Washington Post reporter whose beat is covering social media and online communities. She frequently chronicles bullying behavior therein and has also quite publicly talked about being the recipient of bullying by the online bullies. She even once broke down in tears on MSNBC and detailing how hard it was to be bullied. This behavior, of course, does nothing to deter online bullies. It actually attracts them. And so they gleefully chronicle the reporting forays of Taylor Lorenz. I came into the current uproar in the middle. I couldn't tell what Taylor Lorenz was supposed to have done wrong. I saw she asked someone for comment. That's what reporters do. I saw that she showed up to someone's door further seeking comment. That's what reporters do. That's good reporting. I wish more reporters would do that. Luckily, a document emerged which revealed exactly what Taylor Lorenz was up to. That document was her actual story. Libs of TikTok has become central to right-wing politics. So Libs of TikTok is a Twitter account. It's not actually on TikTok. Showing liberals, libs, really progressive people, saying stupid things or stupid things in the eyes of conservatives, sometimes stupid things in the eyes of you and me. And they do this on their own volition on TikTok. The account's gotten really popular. It has greatly affected public discourse by being featured on Joe Rogan, Tucker Carlson, other Fox shows. It's influenced public policy by leading to some firings or at least employment complications. It's also been retweeted by the account of the press secretary of the governor of Florida. So that is what you call in the public domain. And knowing about the influence of libs of TikTok is a public good. But the creator of libs of TikTok is not a public figure or wasn't. I mean, she did do interviews here with the Ruthless podcast. Even if I did share my personal information, I think in general, the thrill of victory motivates me a lot. Whenever, whenever we have a big victory through my account, um, like a, you know, a crazy groomer teacher being fired, it really fires me up a lot. And then I'm like, okay, this is amazing. And I go out and post another, you know, bombshell story. And I'm just like so motivated to go post the best content ever. Well, now Chaya Rechik has been unmasked. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Unmasked, revealed by that Taylor Lorenz article and some others before her, but Taylor Lorenz really made it known who the libs of TikTok lady was. And I say, if you have that much influence over the public, the public at least deserves to know who you are. 
Not that Lorenz's article was perfect. Lorenz generally writes from a progressive activist perspective. Her editors let her. For instance, here's her description of a teacher targeted by libs of TikTok. Quote, Tyler Wren, a former English teacher in Oklahoma, posted a video telling LGBTQ kids shunned by their parents that Wren was proud of them and loved them. It was featured on libs of TikTok last week. Since being featured on that page, Wren has been barraged with harassments and death threats of course, terrible. And Lorraine is quoted as saying, I've always seen myself as the type of teacher to stand up for marginalized voices. I see fellow teachers on TikTok speak out for our disenfranchised students and they're getting the same sort of harassment too. Death threats barraged? That's terrible. Again, horrible, horrible, horrible. And what did he do? He just stood up for kids. Uh, But here is Rin's Libs of TikTok video that was featured on the site. Hey, if your parents don't love and accept you for who you are this Christmas, fuck them. I'm your parents now. I'm proud of you. Drink some water. I love you. Bye. Well, if you were a parent in that teacher's school, all right, you might not mind, but if you had a friend who was a fellow parent who said, I don't think a teacher should be saying that, you couldn't really disagree with that parent. You couldn't tell the parent that's wrong. That's kind of unteacher-like behavior, right? Fuck your parents from a teacher? That ain't great. He didn't deserve to get fired, but nor did the Lorenz description adequately convey what might have given offense about his comments. It wasn't just standing up for marginalized voices or speaking out for the disadvantaged. It wasn't just that. And Lorenz chronicled the many times libs of TikTok advanced this idiotic rumor narrative or accusation that you hear so much, but she also kind of performed the function of finding what some teachers eagerly were saying out there on TikTok for public consumption, like this lady. This has been my first year in preschool with a class of my own, teaching alongside another queer neurodivergent educator, and we have been rocking our two's class. We've been talking about gender and skin color and consent and empathy and our bodies and autonomy. It's been fabulous. She seems like a fun person, but again, if a parent were uncomfortable with that, some preschool parent, maybe you, maybe your fellow parent, would you say your fellow parent was wrong or not? So I could, that is exactly the sort of video that in 90-something percent of the preschools in America, parents would say, what is going on with that video? Should she be saying this? We need to know more about how she talked about consent. Not that it's impossible to talk about consent with two or three people. I wouldn't call it consent, but things like, no, don't hug. I'm, I, I usually say Janie in these circumstances, but let's update it. No, don't hug Hayden if Hayden doesn't want to be hugged, Right? But of course, because Libs of TikTok is followed by Laura Ingram and has a certain orientation, we did get the Fox host attaching this phrase to that video. Grooming centers for gender identity radicals. Mm -hmm. I do think there's a conversation to be had about teachers putting it all out there, bringing their whole selves to work, to home, to social media. And maybe libs of TikTok serve some sort of extremely imperfect public service. But it is undeniable that the real public service was writing about the libs of TikTok account, chronicling its impact, and doing the fundamental act of the journalist, the first of the five W's, telling us who was behind it. On the show today, Gavin Newsom's multi-billion dollar homeless initiative is assailed by advocates who define advocacy a little differently than I do. But first, a new Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine. We could be seeing a ground war the likes of which has been unknown to Europe since World War II. 
We'll talk about where Putin will get his forces, where he'll get his tactics, and what the West can do to counter him with just about the best possible guest. Ben Hodges was the commanding general of the United States Army in Europe. He retired as a three-star. He now holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and he joins us next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We're joined now by Ben Hodges. He's a retired lieutenant general who holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. His last military assignment was as Commanding General of the United States Army for Europe. General Hodges, welcome to The Gist. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. So you served out your career uh, there in Europe, perhaps never thinking we would see a war of this size on the continent. How would you describe it? Shocked, surprised, uh, a curious development to see Vladimir Putin rolling in full force into an autonomous neighbor? Well, um, I think there, in many, many parts of Europe and even in Washington, there was disbelief that that the Russians would actually do this. I mean, but, you know, I mean, they invaded back in 2014 and, you know, uh, yeah, disbelief that in, in the, this year that in Europe there would be a conflict with missiles and rockets flying into cities and tanks and big ships getting sunk, this kind of thing. It's uh, after 20 years of Afghanistan and Iraq, it, it does seem in a way hard, hard to believe. Let's talk about troop mustering. Uh, this is a pivotal point. It's good. Well, within the context of horror, it's good that we're talking to you now because the Russians are repositioning and they've given up on the goal, it seems, of trying to capture Kiev. So where are they repositioning their troops and which troops? The ones in country or are they getting new people from Russia? Well, they are. Um, it's a little bit of both, of course. Uh, but most of this is what we call reconstitution. When you try to rebuild units that have been battered. And certainly uh, over the last seven weeks, most of the uh, Russian ground forces have been battered. Even those that might have had limited success, you still have casualties, you still wear out equipment, you still run out of stuff, leaders get killed, which is a big deal in a Russian formation where it's so top down, when you start losing leaders, then units become immobile. And they've lost so, eight generals on the front, uh, according to yeah, reports. Yeah. And you can imagine... Um, most of those generals, if you lose one of them to a rocket or whatever, you lose all the colonels and majors around him, too. So um, there's been quite an impact on, on staff. I think one or two of them were killed by a sniper, but most of them have been killed because they were you know, talking on a cell phone, mm -hmm. which is easy to geolocate. And then you hammer it. So um, what, what they're doing, they, they pulled everybody out for, that was fighting north of Kiev. 
tried, brought them back into Belarus and into Russia and, and are going through this reconstitution process where you say, OK, uh, BTG number seven, it's almost completely destroyed. So we're going to take the remaining vehicles and troops and, and use them to fill out somebody else's organization. So there's some of that going on. But to be honest, as, as I said at the beginning, Mike, there's um, it's not like there are tens of thousands of Russian troops in the woods waiting to come in. I mean, they are, for the most part, they're they're all in. They don't have a lot of fresh units. And interestingly, the Kremlin made the decision or the general staff made the decision not to mobilize the reservists. Mm -hmm. Now, that tell, what that tells me is that they have decided, OK, this is all we all we can do this year is try and finish as much as we can in the Donbass region. Finish Mariupol, uh, which is amazing after eight weeks. And that's that city should have been gone in three or four days. So that's a reflection both of Ukrainian, but also Russian fighting qualities. Um, they're not going to there's not going to be a phase three this year, in my assessment, mm -hmm. because they don't have the troops. They don't have the bodies to do it. And so I think they're going, what they're hoping for is to get as much as they can in Donbass and then, you know, have a big victory on uh, victory day celebration on 9 May and, and then try to clean up and consolidate as much as they can and then say, okay, we're ready to negotiate from a, from that position and wait for us to lose interest. Yeah. 9th of May, a big yeah. holiday in Russia, big military holiday celebrating their great victory in World War II, which they seem exactly. to be, which they seem to be forever trying to relive and reconstitute is pretty much the only well source said. of national pride. Exactly. That's very well said. So how many troops do you think they have in the country or, or in I Belarus think, ready to go in that uh, soon? I think total, all the Russian ground forces total. This is a this is a pure guess, but it's probably around 150, mm -hmm. 150,000. But that's that's everybody. I mean, that's that's drivers, medics, cooks, you name it. What what matters is fighting formation and, and artillery and rocket launchers. Um, so they actually are almost about one to one with what Ukraine has, and Ukraine's. <laughs> Ukraine is growing as more and more territorial defense forces and reservists come online. Um, so that there is no numerical advantage overall for Russia on land power. Of course, what they'll try and do, they'll, they'll try and focus it in one place to, to achieve a, a, a majority at the point of attack. Obviously, where they do have the advantages in air, aircraft and in the Navy. Another aspect of the military is the tooth to tail ratio, the support troops to the actual fighters. And I know in the U.S. military, it's what is it, three times as high as it is in the Russian military? Um, yeah, you know, we probably. have. Yeah, we have uh, the United States goes out with so many support troops for everyone fighting. How will that affect things? Because especially, so you said that the Ukrainians and the uh, Russians are a parody, but just thinking about it, the Ukrainians have all their material right there. They have all their, or enough of their food right there. It seems like even a one-to-one -one ratio of troops would favor the Ukrainians and not just because they're playing defense. Yeah, uh, again, very good point. The uh, kind of the rule of thumb, and that's all it is, is a rule of thumb. For big ballpark numbers, you need three to one at the point of attack overall uh, combat power um, because the defender does have certain advantages. So you have to overwhelm that. Now, the way you change that, of course, is with increased firepower, use of aircraft, deception to draw off the defenders, all these kinds of things uh, that will uh, affect that sort of calculus. But of course, warfare is never just about math. It's about 
skill and how things are employed. Um, one of the very interesting te- uh, indicators to me of the challenges that the Russians are having is trucks, uh, because everything has to move by a truck convoy. And you're right, even though there's, their supply lines are relatively shorter on the east than it was in the north, you, sh- you still have to drive a truck with very heavy loads of ammunition. This stuff is very heavy. And uh, we have specially made vehicles with suspension that can hold that weight. Plus, you got to have fuel trucks, you know, bringing thousands of liters of fuel. <laughs> what a nice target. And so um, the Russians, not only do they not have enough trucks, you know, I mentioned earlier the tire problem that they're having. They're, they're using civilian trucks. Those things don't last because they're not built to withstand the, the wear and tear. So th- I think um, they're going to experience the same logistical problems now that they did seven weeks ago. Mm. So let's talk about the air defenses. Uh, I have heard you on other shows and in other fora saying that it's possible to at least start thinking about what a no-fly zone might mean. Um, On my show, I have said, I'm very very afraid of the fact that they have nuclear weapons. I'm not going to make it dispositive in all my decisions. But once you do that, you do risk escalating a war between nuclear nations. Spell out what your version of a no-fly zone could mean. Okay, so first of all, we have deterred ourselves. I think we've exaggerated the risk of a escalation or a nuclear conflict. Of course, they have nuclear weapons. Of course, we have to treat that threat seriously. But I think we're making uh, wrong policy decisions based on an exaggerated fear. There are zero battlefield advantages for Russia to use any tactical nuclear weapon. Zero. And I think that the people at the other end of that long table from Putin are, are thinking, you know, there's going to be life after him. And so there, there's just no positive outcome for Russia if they decide to use it. And I do think that Putin is actually rational in a, in a Russian sense, maybe not the way you and I might think rationally, because otherwise this war should have never started. Now, uh, but a no-fly zone. First of all, I tell the Russians, I say, look, in 48 hours, we're going to fill the sky with F-35s, other NATO aircraft, U.S. aircraft, you name it. We're going to fill the sky. We're going to have air-to-air, air-to-ground. We're going to have AWACS, and we're going to be prepared. If any Russian aircraft comes up, we're going to blow it away. And if anybody shoots a missile from down down below, we're we're going to hammer it immediately. And so we're communicating that, that this is about allowing civilians to get out to to stop the murder of innocent people. All right. So there's there's got to be a real clear communication and it has to be overwhelming. And I think the F-35 was designed for this fight. Now, part of the problem is that um, what the Russian Air Force is doing is actually they're launching missiles from inside Russian airspace. I mean, they're not even. That wouldn't violate a no-fly zone. So we, you know, that, so that's why um, the no-fly zone doesn't necessarily take care of the problem. Yeah, this is what I th- I think is happening. I think you're right. I mean, let me not psychoanalyze you, but give you my assessment of your analysis. You're a military man. You've faced, uh, you've looked across the Iron Curtain or what was the Iron Curtain for many years. You've said, you know, degrading Russian capability would be a great thing. Here's the chance to do it. You see how vulnerable they are. We've never had them at this point or a vulnerability and we've never had the moral upper hand like we do now. Also, you see that the Ukrainians have a chance of winning the war, which you don't hear much from Joe Biden. 
Biden. Um, maybe he's being extra cautious. And so you're saying now is a chance that we can actually, this is a chance that we could take and could have uh, great effects for the peace of that region for years to come. Thank you. This is about much more than just Ukraine. I mean, this is democracy against autocracy. And right. if we're not able to stop the Russians here, uh, then they will feel emboldened that they could go to finish up Georgia, go to Moldova, or maybe even attack one of our uh, NATO allies if they see that we can't get our act together enough to stop them. And of course, the Chinese are watching this. And if they see that the United States with all of our allies and diplomatic and economic military power cannot stop Russia here, then I don't think they're going to be too impressed with what we say about Taiwan or the South China Sea. Now, it is important for the president, I think, it, it, to say, this is what winning looks like, all right? I mean, we need to have a desired outcome. The desired outcome is not get to a settlement. The desired outcome is, number one, all Russians back to the pre-24 February line. Number two, all the Ukrainians who were kidnapped and deported out of Ukraine since we're in Russia, they're all brought back home to Ukraine immediately. Number three, a long-term commitment by the United States and Europe to the restoration of full sovereignty of Ukraine. That means Crimea and Donbass. And then number four, we break the back of the Russians' ability to threaten their neighbors. We don't need to threaten Russia because that, that, now they will start seriously getting an itchy finger about nuclear weapons. That's in their doctrine. But smashing what they have inside Ukraine, that way they cannot threaten their neighbors anymore. Right. And this is why the Ukrainians need more battlefield victories to have a stronger negotiating point where they don't have to give up regions of their countries in order to achieve a peace and a lasting peace. Exactly. Last question. It's not about military tactics. You live there in Europe. Uh, you know, the we're seeing the importance of NATO. Give me an assessment of the threat that Marine Le Pen poses in terms of the NATO alliance, if you could compare it to at least the rhetoric that Donald Trump engaged in, in terms of threatening the stability of NATO. Yeah, uh, France, such an important ally, uh, you know, in, in terms of real capability, uh, as well as uh, tradition, um, economy, it's, its geography. I mean, it, it's, it's very important to the alliance. And uh, her language um, is is concerning for a variety of reasons. One, she's talked about, we're not going to do anything else with Germany anymore. We're going to no more uh, cooperation with the Germans in, in industry, which is, which is really uh, interesting. But she also uh, has embraced Putin. I mean, literally, she, she points to him. So she's in the same camp as Orban. And she's frankly, she's also in the same camp as the former President Trump. I mean, of having embraced what the Kremlin stands for. Which, which is the opposite, in my mind, of the French motto, the egality, liberty, and fraternity, you know, the, all those things, that she's the opposite of that. Um, we'll see. Uh, right now, I think President Macron has about an eight-point uh, lead in, in polls, but Sunday, Sunday's a big day. And could you compare it to when, when Donald Trump was at least engaging in the uh, rhetoric of questioning NATO. Is this much more serious than that? Uh, the United States is a more important part of NATO. Yeah, it's France is a, yeah tell me about I, that. I see, your, I see your point there. Uh, no, when, 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 remember France kicked NATO out back in the 60s during the time of, of De Gaulle. So the headquarters had to leave France and that's why it's in, in Belgium uh, now. 
but when the when the president of the United States says something, that that is a that is huge. Uh, you know, the president. Never in my life would I have guessed that a president of the United States would ever question Article Five, or why NATO, or our, how valuable it is for us. Nobody said it was perfect. It's, it's far from perfect, but I mean, nothing comes close in terms of of a any kind of an agreement between nations to collective defense. Ben Hodges, retired lieutenant general, holds the Persian chair in strategic studies at SEPA, the Center for European Policy Analysis. Thank you so much, General Hodges. Hey, thank you for the privilege. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now the spiel. We've always had some of the problem, but now it's gotten worse than ever. That is the theme of so many American municipalities and states. In New York, the problem is crime. New York's never been crime-free, but now it's worse than ever. Throughout Texas, problems illegal immigration. And in California, the problem is homelessness. So the governor of the most populous state in the country put together an aggressive and expensive plan to combat homelessness, more voguishly described as the issue of the unhoused, those experiencing homelessness. Estimates are that to build the amount of housing needed to create affordability in California would take trillions of dollars. The quicker fix, given that there is a crisis, is triage focusing on the mentally ill and the drug-addicted, often referred to these days as those experiencing chemical dependency. The plan, Gavin Newsom's plan, is called CARE Court. CARE is one of those clever government acronyms. But it would create a new branch of civil courts and allow county courts to mandate 12-month personalized plans, including drug stabilization for, quote, the most severely ill and vulnerable individuals. I'll read from the official description put forward by the state care court is not for everyone experiencing homelessness or mental illness. Rather, it focuses on people with schizophrenia spectrum or other psychotic disorders who lack medical decision-making capacity before they get arrested and committed to a state hospital and become so impaired they end up in a mental health conservatorship. Now, in normal politics, or the politics of about 49, maybe Vermont, they do have a Republican governor, though, but let's say about 47 or 48 other states. Here's how it plays out. Democrats offer a plan, a lot of social spending uh, targeted at a social problem. Republicans object to the cost. Some Democrats, by the way, might agree with that, especially if they're Democrats in more rural areas, looking at homelessness as a more urban problem. There would be a faction of conservatives in this place, in this state, who would want more punitive measures and would maybe allege that big government is trying to solve a problem that's really one of personal responsibility. Civil libertarians might quibble with the details, but depending on the politics of the local branch of the ACLU, say, they'd come on board once they got a chance to offer a tweak or two. 
Not in California. There, disability and homeless rights advocates are either extremely powerful or, I think, just given a lot of attention. So you have this cover story in the LA Times today. Homeless advocates assail care court proposal as coercive. I mean, change the verb from assail to describe, and that's not the top adjective he'd use, but I think Gavin Newsom might cop to the fact that, yeah, care court is coercive. That's part of the point of it. Again, the fundamental idea is the state is spending $14 billion on combating homelessness and a large chunk of it, maybe $3.5 billion, will go to this program for the people who need it the most, the profoundly mentally ill people will in fact be compelled to participate in the program. Now here was Kim Peterson on the public radio station KQED's forum program describing her group, Disability Rights California, their misgivings. Court should be the absolute last stop on a person's recovery journey. And countering the Gavin Newsom idea that this mental health counseling is an upstream intervention, Peterson said. Um, A truly upstream intervention does whatever it takes to patiently and persistently engage people in the full spectrum of housing and community-based services that that the administration is talking about. But Californians aren't patient, not anymore. And those unhoused individuals' engagement in a patient recovery journey, in all likelihood, will never get to the beginning phases of the journey if they are still in the throes of mental illness. To quote a 14-page letter co-authored by, among others, Peterson's organization, the ACLU, and the Western Poverty Law Center, quote, Care court is not the appropriate tool for providing a path to wellness. Instead, California should invest in evidence-based practices that are proven to work and will actually empower people living with mental health disabilities on their paths to recovery and allow them to retain full autonomy over their lives without the intrusion of a court. But someone who is schizophrenic does not have autonomy. These courts are designed to intervene when a criminal conviction might be at play. That would not result in autonomy either. But the main point is that mental illness controls so many decisions and actions of people that if untreated, stability and agency and autonomy is impossible. Is it really even at this point advocacy for a schizophrenic person? To keep him or her out of a system that will provide or, yes, even compel care? To him, to hear Kim Peterson tell it, it is. Because first you have to provide housing. And then, I think she's saying, you have to hope people will get treatment. The state should instead allocate the billions of dollars that it's talking about here towards placement of this population and housing first, followed by engagement in voluntary services. There are voluntary services, but thousands upon thousands go untreated because they choose not to volunteer for voluntary services because they are quite often not acting rationally. People with mental illness aren't. Court care would provide every participant in it with an attorney and also provide mental health counseling, including psychiatric visits, prescriptions for medication, and board and care facilities for treatment. Now, the state does have a form of compelled mental health outpatient conservatorship. In the year 2019, 218 total Californians were compelled or put into that program. In San Francisco, which has a massive homeless problem. They adopted the program three years ago, and since that time, a total of two people have entered the program. Care Court will treat an estimated 7,000 to 12,000 patients. Cynthia Castillo, a main opponent of Care Court with the Western Center on Law and Poverty, says Care Court, quote, 
seems to be expanding the bureaucracy of homelessness services. Yes, because the definition of bureaucracy is government agencies working on an issue. There will, in fact, be more government agencies working on this issue. That is the point of creating Care Court, a government service. Castillo goes on to add, We're adding judges and attorneys into the mix in hopes of better connecting unhoused individuals with housing and medical care, but nothing else really changes. But that's a huge change. That is a change thousands need. The LA Times write-up, front page write-up of the advocates of their objections say, quote, they worry that Care Court would disproportionately target people of color. I would say service, not target, but yes. If it didn't, it wouldn't be addressing the homeless problem in California. When disproportionately marginalized communities are suffering, programs designed to alleviate that suffering need to be oriented towards those marginalized communities. The Western Center on Law and Poverty lists as its mission, through the lens of economic and racial justice, Western Center on Law and Poverty fights in courts, cities, counties, and in the capital to secure housing, health care, and a strong safety net for Californians with low incomes. Many systems keep people in poverty, this is still from their mission statement, from institutionalized racism to unjust and unequal economic structures. We address those factors in every aspect of our work and call out the ways they oppress people experiencing poverty. But mental illness is an oppression. And it seems to me that opposing interventions in the name of advancing the agency of the mentally ill is the furthest thing from liberation. That's the opposite of oppression. We're aiming for liberation. People deserve to be liberated from their mental illness. I don't know if quote-unquote homeless advocates will amount to actual opposition to this bill, no matter how much attention that they get. But I do know that just the same arguments are not working to address homelessness. The same old definition of advocacy, which relies on passivity, And non-intervention, when it comes to the fact that mental illness is certainly a cause of homelessness, well, those arguments are clearly inadequate to the moment. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced with assistant producer Corey Warren, not just with him, but by him. And by Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is chief canvasser for the Peachfish Productions organization. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening. 